Welcome to another edition of Speaking of Water, Circle of Blue's series of conversations with water experts on the big topics of the day. I'm your host, Brett Walton. Today we're discussing what happens when low-income neighborhoods and communities of color bear the burden of pollution. These are environmental injustices, and President Joe Biden has entered office pledging to correct them. Joining me today are two guests who will help understand what the federal government can do and what it should focus on. We have Mustafa Santiago Ali, who is the Vice President of Environmental Justice, Climate and Community Revitalization at the National Wildlife Federation. We also have Monica Lewis-Patrick, who's the President and CEO of We the People of Detroit, a group working to build a more just and democratic city. Welcome to you both. Thank you, Brett. The country seems to be awakening to the need for a new kind of environmentalism, one that includes all people as well as nature. These problems though have festered for decades. Is there a reason to believe that this is truly a different moment? How about Santiago? Yeah, I would say that um, we are all hopeful and we're optimistic, but we continue to be cautiously optimistic as advocates and activists um, and make sure that real change happens. Uh, President Biden, uh, in his executive orders and, and his climate and environmental platform, and even when he was running, called out the fact that there are these injustices, these disinvestments that continue to happen in communities of color and lower wealth white communities on indigenous land. Um, so they, they put together a framework um, that leads us in a positive direction. Uh, if we can build the capacity and if we can make sure that the voices of communities are actually honored and the expertise uh, that exists inside of their community. So there is reason for optimism, but that optimism also has to be anchored in the reality um, of the challenges that are going on on the ground in frontline communities and the resources that are gonna have to be placed to actually address crumbling infrastructures, to address the public health emergency that we currently have. And then also to understand that uh, climate crisis that we're facing is also gonna exacerbate these issues. So we have to have the infrastructure, the people, and we've got to honor the voice of communities. And Monica, working in Detroit, uh, how do you see this as a, a moment of hope and, and what can be done in Detroit to further this? Well, we've also seen the incoming Biden administration usher in great opportunities here in the city of Detroit as it pertains to water access, water affordability, water quality. One of those actions have been that it really has pushed the current mayor to take a position of no water shutoffs until 2022. This was a situation that in the past, we could not get this mayor to even acknowledge that there was water inequities and massive water shutoffs. So we believe that the Biden administration definitely ushers in an opportunity to prioritize not only the economy, but the improvements that are necessary to ensure that all Americans have access to clean, safe, and affordable water. You both mentioned the, the Biden administration and president came in claiming environmental justice is a priority and that communities left behind will be emphasized. What levers does the federal government have to bring to this? I know you mentioned the issue of resources, Mustafa. So what, what does the federal government bring to the table here? Well, the federal government has a lot of tools and that's why we need to make sure that there's a full environmental justice analysis and all the actions that they do so that the resources actually flow to the communities that need them the most. President Biden has been very clear that they plan on investing $2 trillion that's coming out of the climate economy and 40% of that is supposed to go to vulnerable communities. So we have these conversations that are currently going on around infrastructure. 
Well, that means that whether we're talking about EPA or HUD or transportation, HHS, or excuse me, Health and Human Services, or, or a number of the other agencies that are out there, that we've got to make sure that the grants, the cooperative agreements, the contracting, and the subcontracting opportunities are helping to build wealth and power and helping to improve the lives of communities who have often been unseen and unheard. So they have a number of opportunities to make sure that there is that environmental justice analysis so that those resources flow. They also have tools that are out there, whether you've everyone's seen or have heard about on the EJ screen, and they're going to enhance that. So that's a geographical information tool, a GIS system, if you will, that can help folks to have snapshots of what's going on. But that's just the first step because you have to ground truth that information. And that's why groups like We the People of Detroit and others are so critically important because tools are only as good as the information that, that is populated by. And that's why you need to make sure that the voices of communities are actually helping to ground through things for you and let you know where you should be investing beyond just the utilization of those tools. So they have a number of different possibilities that they can follow. But for me, it's all about making sure there is a true environmental justice analysis, and then you'll get the best bang for your buck. And Monica, how can those federal uh, levers be used to put resources in place in Detroit? Well, I definitely agree with what uh, Dr. Ailey just stated, that if we begin to tie bar those federal dollars to workforce development strategies, making sure that any community that's able to take advantage of those federal dollars from the state or the local level must be tie barring them to things like a water affordability policy that would ensure that those folks that need the most investment are getting it. And then we would also echo that there must be not only at the federal level, the analysis and the assessment of what tools are working, but we also, what we saw in Detroit and play out all across Michigan, it was very hard to get data to even be able to guide the research and the science as to where water needed to be restored, who needed the most assistance and how to get it to them. And so we believe that it also must have some transparencies around the accountability for water shutoffs, water restorations, also those same kinds of metrics in terms of how quickly we're getting money to those communities that need to address lead line removal. So if I'm hearing you both correctly, it seems that your view that environmental justice relates not only to putting projects in communities and reducing pollution, but also making sure that the community themselves is getting a piece of the work, that it's not just putting dollars in, it's putting dollars into people in the communities. One of the principles of the environmental justice movement is that communities speak for themselves. So um, when, you, when you're living on that principle and it's truly integrated into what you're doing, then of course communities are the ones who are the drivers and the framers. And of course there are authentic collaborative partnerships with others that all come together uh, to make sure that real change can happen. The only thing that I would add is that many of these tools and instruments that Dr. Ali talked about have been in place for decades. One that I would love to lift up is the HUD Section 3 model that the late Congressman John Conyers actually authored almost 46 years ago could actually be a tool in this moment that could put more Americans back to work and definitely utilizing an EJ model and framework to expand that opportunity to more people. We need jobs, contracts, and training tie bar to this EJ movement so that you're seeing a high tide lift all boats. You talk about data and being able to track progress. And President Biden has said that 40% of the benefits would flow to environmental justice communities. 
how easily is that to be monitored? And is that something you can monitor well enough to be able to hold the president accountable for that pledge? Well, there are a number of different things that you have to do. Again, I'll continue to go back and say that when you have that environmental justice analysis, then that also means that there is a space and a place where that information is kind of being corralled, if you will. So that's one part of it. But we're actually moving a little bit further down the road without actually talking about capacity. So the question becomes, when we're talking about, you know, 40% of $2 trillion, then does the states have the capacity because of you... Talking about the Environmental Protection Agency as one example, the majority of the programs are actually delegated to the states. And then, of course, moving from the states to the counties and local government in some instances. So you've got to make sure that the capacity is there, along with making sure that the resources are there for the communities. And unless you get those components right, um, making sure that you have individuals who have the competencies that are necessary to understand the dynamics that are happening inside of frontline communities, then you're missing a piece of the puzzle. Of course, that all ties into the fact of as these dollars begin to flow, then you need to be able to track them to make sure that they're actually getting to the places that need them the most. We've seen things like the, um, the SRF in the water context, where there have been certain states that have not utilized those dollars in a way to help uh, the communities, uh, our most vulnerable communities. So we've got to make sure that those pieces of the puzzle are together and that the accountability mechanisms are in place. So not only are we tracking the dollars, but we're also being able to track the results and then be able to utilize that data to then create best practices, if you will, and be able to share those so that we can exponentially uh, grow the good. Now I'll say that again for your listeners, to grow the good because we often have been able to grow the bad, it's time for us to focus on actually changing that paradigm. And what does that look like, growing the good? Take a community like Detroit, Monica, or somewhere else in Michigan. What does growing the good look like there? I think growing the good for Detroiters would look like just what Dr. Ali talked about, is being able to have that transparency, being able to have the coordination between the federal, state, and local government in making sure that those dollars actually arrive. Some of what we're hearing is even the dollars that are already allocated through the CARES Act have not all been disseminated because of gridlock at the state levels across the nation. And so we must be able to move these best practices in a bipartisan way. And one of the things I believe that a true water strategy for the nation, and I believe Detroit would be a perfect prototype for, is being able to bring together these best practices of not only creating a pathway for water affordability, but then being able to tie bar it to jobs, contracts, training, making sure that we're building up the infrastructure, not only in terms of the physical infrastructure, but then building the workforce that's going to be necessary to maintain and manage that system. And that, to me, makes Detroit prime for this opportunity. But we can't continue to put ourselves in the forefront of being the poster child for progression in Detroit. And then we know we have these looming, glaring disparities. And I think that is indicative of what we're seeing across the nation. We've got to do some truth telling about where we are in order to be able to mobilize the nation, and especially at a local level, to get us where we want to go. And if you were addressing a state official or someone who's just now trying to get their heads around this coordination problem, how would they go about it? Who are they looking to, to interact with and to deploy these resources that might be coming? 
Well, some of where I think people are missing opportunities is a lot of times nonprofits and grassroots are the closest to the issues, along with those community members that are dealing with the issue and living those conditions. I really believe that it's a critical time for us to make sure that we're opening up the communications loop, that there is the opportunity not only for the administration to disseminate information, but they're constantly receiving information. And I believe they've done a good job of that as they've started. But sometimes what happens is as you begin to get bad information, the communication channels shut down and we need this administration to stay open to all the innovation and all of the opportunities to really do something progressive and big in this moment. And I believe water infrastructure is one of those big ideas that Americans are known for doing and the time is ripe for us to do it. We've just got to figure out a pathway that makes sure that both sides of the aisle understands that this is not only good for business, it's good for the overall health and the vitality of the nation. I want to end by looking ahead four years. A lot of these problems have developed over decades, centuries even, and that ship can't be turned completely in four years. But where do you think we could be in four years? What do you think is possible in this administration to get things going? Well, I mean, there are a number of things, hopefully at the end of four years, that we'll see that's different. Waterborne illnesses uh, significantly decreased. We can make sure that the lead pipes that exist across our country, you know, that a significant portion of those have now been replaced, that we're creating as Ms. Monica just said, we're creating, you know, not just thousands of jobs, but literally millions of new jobs and rebuilding the infrastructure inside of our country. There are so many amazing things that are right in front of us. The question is, are are folks willing to prioritize it and are willing to, to seize the moment, if you will? And then, of course, for so many of us, the other part of that is that we also can build wealth inside of many communities who have often been forgotten as a part of many of these sort of economic pushes forward. So we can make sure that that is also a part of this 21st century set of opportunities that we have in front of us. Brett, I would just offer what I've learned from Dr. Ali and so many other EJ giants is that an EJ framework leaves no one behind. An EJ framework leaves no one behind. And I think approaching all of these environmental disparity issues is a great opportunity for us to start to create a paradigm shift in terms of how we've looked at our relationship, not only with government, but also our relationship with the environment. Uh, I believe what I've learned from Dr. Ali is that this is a great opportunity for us to do the right thing and to begin to move our country in a more progressive, positive direction as it relates to our overall health and our overall wellness. Once again, I'd like to thank our guests, Mustafa Santiago Ali of the National Wildlife Federation and Monica Lewis-Patrick of We the People of Detroit. Thanks for coming here. Thank you for having me, Brett. Thank you, Dr. Ali. (laughs) Thank you, Ms. Lewis-Patrick. Appreciate you, Brett. You always (laughs) make it easy. (laughs) You killed it. As always, you killed it. Uh, You know, I'm the biggest Mustafa Ali fan there is out here other than your mama and your grandma. (laughs) (laughs) And for Circle of Blue, I'm Brett Walton. Have a good one, everyone. You too.